Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. Well, welcome back to our Dangerous Faith series. It's great to have you back with us again today. We're journeying through the book of Acts through the lens of the persecuted church. And we've got some aims for this series, which you can see on the screen now. We're hoping to get a better understanding of the early church and how it spread and flourished, even under persecution. We're hoping to deepen our confidence in God's love in our own times of suffering. And we're hoping to grow in awareness of our persecuted brothers and sisters across the world. So have those aims in mind as we continue on through this series. Today we have a new speaker from Open Doors, This uh, a guy called Nick Page. Nick is a historian uh, and an author. He's written uh, lots and lots of books, some great books. Um, I've had the chance to read a couple of his books uh, around understanding the Bible and the life of Jesus. So you may want to look up Nick Page uh, after this talk and just see where any of those books take your fancy because he really is a great writer. He's humorous, uh, he's articulate, and he's also very, very well read. So um, worth looking at some of Nick's books later on. So we're going to watch his video now, and then as always, come back and explore the themes in just a moment. The cross. It's one of the most famous symbols in the world. We're used to seeing it on churches, on the covers of books and Bibles, worn as jewellery, or even on the bumper stickers of cars. But the early church didn't use the symbol very much. They talked about the cross, of course, about its life and death message, but they didn't depict it in their art. For the early church, of course, the cross was still an instrument of torture and execution. The cities in which they lived had permanent crucifixion sites where victims were being killed on a daily basis. Many of the members of the early church followed their leader and died on the cross. Perhaps that's why the earliest Christian art features different images, anchors, fish, doves, pictures of life. In fact, the first person to draw a picture of Jesus on a cross was not a Christian at all. In the late second century, someone scratched a crude picture into the plaster on the wall of a room in Rome. The picture shows a man being crucified and surprisingly, the crucifixion victim has the head of a donkey. Below him is a boy apparently raising his hand to worship this strange creature and underneath the artist has written in Greek, Alexamenos Sebetetheon, Alexamenos worships his god. Now, it's a childish drawing, which is appropriate enough because it was probably done by a schoolboy. The building was once used as a boarding school for imperial page boys, and we can imagine how this drawing originated. In this school, there was a boy called Alexamenos, and there was something different about Alexamenos, something which caused his schoolmates to taunt and maybe even bully him, something which made them draw mocking pictures on the wall. Alexamenos was weird. Alexamenos was a Christian. It should come as no surprise that the first known picture of Jesus on the cross is a cruel mockery, because Jesus warned his followers that they'd be mocked and insulted. They would be singled out and ridiculed and called names. Names like, well, like Christian. Acts chapter 11 tells us of the beginning of the church in Antioch in Syria. Christianity is spreading by now, well outside the confines of Judea and Samaria and Galilee. As they flee the persecution in Jerusalem, followers of Jesus go to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And far from being destroyed or crushed, the church starts to grow. 
It especially takes root in Antioch, so much so that Barnabas is sent from HQ to, to oversee things. He recruits Saul, or Paul as he'll soon be better known, and the church flourishes. And then you get to Acts 11 verse 26, which contains this tiny but very significant historical fact. It was in Antioch, Luke writes, that the disciples were first called Christians. It sort of passes us by this verse. You know, of course they were called Christians. That's what they were always called, wasn't it? Well, no. Back in Jerusalem, they were called by different names, Nazarenes, or perhaps the Eboni, which means the poor. And the way of life they followed was not called Christianity in those times. It was called simply the way. Indeed, later on in Acts, the Roman procurator Felix is described as being particularly well-informed about the way. But in Antioch, they called them Christians. Now, where did they get that from? Well, the people of Antioch were a cosmopolitan bunch, and they had a strong sense of their own superiority. Antioch was, after all, the third greatest city in the Roman Empire. And they were renowned also for their scurrilous wit and invention of nicknames. And you see, that's what this name is. It's a nickname. As the people in Antioch became aware of this growing movement, some wit in an Antioch bar or, or reclining at a banquet or, or somewhere like that invented the name Christiani. It's clever, really. It's a mix of two Greek words. The Greek word Christ, meaning anointed one, a name Jesus' followers certainly used. But it's also a pun on the word Christos, which means good or useful, and which was a common name given to slaves. So you see how this works. According to the barbed wit of the people in Antioch, Jesus' followers were the Christiani, good little slaves, followers of Christ. And even though they meant it as an insult, the name stuck. As I said, Jesus warned his followers that this kind of thing would happen. Blessed are you, he said, when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And over the years, thousands, perhaps millions of Christians have been blessed in this way. Christians like Sam. Sam was raised as a Muslim in the Philippines. And then everything changed when he found a copy of the Gospels in his grandfather's house and Sam became a Christian. And when his school friends found out, well, boy, did they go to town, the insults flew, friendships were withdrawn. There were times during classes when, when kids would throw their shoes at him. They wrote stuff on his uniform, filled his bag with sand, bullied him, punched him. One day, one of his former friends yelled at him, you Christians are filthy, Christians are garbage. Sam wanted to fight back, but he didn't. He found some help in an Open Doors discipleship program for young Christians from Muslim background. And, and he tried to live out the commands of Jesus, to love his enemies, to bless and not to curse. And, and even when he left school, he still thought of his old friends from time to time, and he prayed for them. When I remember my old friends, my heart breaks, he said. I lost them. And though they turned out to be my enemies, I, I don't hate them. Instead, I pray for them that one day they will meet my Lord Jesus and be changed. It's an everyday story, not, nothing special really, but it shows that not much has changed in 2,000 years since Alexa Menos was getting pretty much the same treatment in Rome. Every day around the world, Christians get insulted, abused and lied about. In many places where Christians are the minority, followers of Jesus are the targets of lies, abuse and innuendo. 
One of the most extreme examples of this is Pakistan, where fabricated testimony and unfounded accusations of blasphemy can see Christians locked up or even killed. In Pakistan, Christians are called by the Urdu word Isai, derived from Issa, the Arabic word for Jesus. Now, it sounds okay, but it's a bit of a put-down. It's associated with unclean professions, demeaning occupations done by the lowest castes. And these people are so vulnerable. In Pakistan recently, a couple were reportedly burned to death in a kiln. Their crime? Well, they were Christians. And because they came from a low-status background, because they couldn't read or write or defend themselves, they were just disposable. They didn't matter. Christianity is seen as disreputable, low status, attracting only the lowest of the low. And there's a very good reason for that. It's true. Christianity does attract the poor and the outcasts and the humble and the weak by the very simple reason that God loves them. The fact is that around the world, people who have no place in their society, no hope in their governments, people who have been told that they are on the lowest rung of the ladder and that's where they will always be, these are the very people who find out they have a brother and a Lord who is willing to become one of them so that they become one with him. They find out that Jesus is on their side that no matter what status society gives them, Jesus calls them sister and brother, and no wonder they think that's good news. That's a very powerful and very dangerous message because it challenges the status quo. It challenges the way that the wealthy and the powerful see the world. No wonder these people are attacked and victimised. No wonder they're abused. And we should expect to be mocked and looked down on the same. I mean, that's what people do when their worldview is threatened. But it doesn't mean we're helpless. There is much we can do to counter these messages. We can give people the tools to defend themselves. Not weapons, but information, knowledge. That's why Open Doors partners with literacy projects and employment training. And why we train Christians to defend their beliefs. And above all, we can pray for those who persecute and pray for the strength to show Christ in these moments. Paul, a man who probably attracted more insults than most, wrote that he could be content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution and calamities for the sake of Christ, for whenever I am weak, then I am strong. That's the history of Acts 11 verse 26. The people in Antioch thought they were being witty and clever, but 2,000 years later, there were more followers of Jesus in the world than ever before, and they all wear with pride the name that those in Antioch thought was a put-down. They're all called Christian. So let's begin by reading the passage in the book of Acts that Nick was referring to. This is Acts 11. I'm going to read from verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, so that for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And this passage begins with a flashback 
back to the mid AD 30s when persecution broke out after the stoning of Stephen when he confronted the authorities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the writer of Acts, uh, Luke, takes us forward into the uh, early 40s AD uh, when you see, we see something else happening. We see Barnabas going to Antioch and bringing Saul, sorry, and recruits Saul and brings him back. Uh, and, he, and Saul is the person who later becomes known as the Apostle Paul. Well, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a bustling cosmopolitan city. And it was here that Luke tells us that the followers of Jesus, the early disciples, were first called Christians. And I found it fascinating to learn that this word Christian was really a nickname. It was a put-down first created by the witty people in Antioch. And I'm sure we've all suffered nicknames during our lives. Some of them are, are, are harmless, but often a nickname is designed to put down and to mock. And that's exactly what this nickname of Christian was created for by the people of Antioch. They looked at these followers of Jesus, these early disciples, and they looked down upon them. They just described them as good little slaves of Jesus. That's what the word Christian literally meant. And I think they were mocked because as far as the people of Antioch were concerned, they were following a failed leader. This was Jesus, Jesus who talked a great game, but ended up dying a criminal's death on a Roman cross. He was, as far as they were concerned, a failed leader. And yet these people were still choosing to follow him and to serve him. And these early followers of the way, the people that the Antioch people call Christians, must have seemed to be foolish to those around them. Jesus spoke about power, but in the end he couldn't overcome the power of the Roman Empire and the religious authorities. Imagine if you'd been living in Antioch back in those days and you'd heard about these early followers of the way, you'd heard about these followers of Jesus. How would you have reacted to them? What would you have thought about them? Would you have been swept along uh, by the mockery? Would you have been interested? I really find it interesting to try and put myself in the situation of the people uh, we find in the gospel story. I think it's human nature, isn't it, to look and exploit weakness in each other. And I think we've all been mocked and we've probably all been part of the mockers as well. We've all probably done that during our lives. We've all been on the receiving end of nicknames and probably we've dreamt a few up for people as well. I know for me, before I encountered Jesus personally many years ago, I think I would mock Christians and mock Christianity because I just saw it as a weak thing. I saw it as a, as a crutch. I mean, that phrase is used so much, but I saw Christians as just weak people and, and Christianity seemed to be a very weak thing as well. But the Jesus that I mocked and the Jesus that these people in Antioch were mocking actually is the most powerful person that's ever lived. In Colossians chapter 1, it says this. It talks about the Son, and this is Jesus that Paul is writing about here. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in Colossae. He's writing to them, and as he writes, he gets this revelation of Jesus' all-encompassing power. 
And he begins to describe it. And imagine you could jump into the most super advanced rocket and travel to the far sides of the universe and visit galaxies and visit all the stars and all the planets, millions upon millions upon millions in our universe. And as you came to each one, you had found the stamp made by Jesus. Imagine you could shrink down to the smallest, smallest particle, like in that film, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp. You could shrink right down to the quantum level and you could visit those tiny, tiny, tiny particles that make us up. And as you looked at those particles, you would find made by Jesus. Paul tells us that God is in the macro and the micro. He's in the, the vastness of the universe and the bafflingly small of the quantum level. Jesus is through it all and he holds it all together. And Paul goes on to say, he uses terms like thrones and powers and rulers and authorities to describe sort of a physical and spiritual hierarchy that exists throughout creation. And he's using, he's painting a word picture here for us of everything, visible and invisible, spiritual and natural. And he says, this powerless Jesus that was mocked by the people of Antioch is the most powerful being and he holds everything together. And he goes on to say this, he says, and he's the head of the church, sorry, head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul tells that Jesus' all-encompassing power is exerted just to do one thing, to reconcile everyone back to the Creator. God had a plan, a good plan. It says in Scripture that everything he created was good. But humans twisted that plan, distorted that plan. They chose to go their own way. They chose to turn their back on God. They chose to worship the created things rather than the creator. They made idols out of the created things. And they turned their back on God and their thinking became darkened. And it says in scripture they became enemies of God because of their choices and their rebellion. Paul says in from verse 21, it says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free of accusation. So even though you and I and the rest of humankind turned our back on God's love, God still chose to rescue us from darkness. His plan through Christ was to reconcile everything back to his love, to bring the creation back to the creator. And this is the true power that's displayed through the powerless Jesus the most powerful being in the universe allowed himself to be arrested, falsely accused, beaten, scourged, and then ultimately put to death on a Roman cross. And he allowed all this to happen to bring you and I back into the Father's love, back into the goodness of the Creator. He chose to surrender to death on a cross to enable you and I to have a relationship 
with the God who loves us. And we do that as we receive that sacrifice into our lives, as we accept that act, as we receive the forgiveness of God. We're made without blemish, Paul says. We're made without accusation. We're free. The slate is wiped clean. And I don't think we'll ever fully understand in this life what Christ has really done for us. I was listening to a podcast recently by the theologian N.T. Wright and he said, perhaps it is the mercy of God that the way the cosmos is ordered, we may never, it may never present itself like a car broken into parts on a garage floor waiting to be reassembled. You know, sometimes we want God to be like that, don't we? Just a series of parts we can put together to form a composite picture. But God is bigger than that. And N.T. Wright went on to say, we only really see who God is when we look at Jesus. When we look at Jesus. And when the people of Antioch looked at Jesus, they saw a powerless figure. They saw a powerless figure who, who ended up dying on a Roman cross. That was the lens they looked at him through. They couldn't reconcile why people would choose to follow this, this powerless leader. And the fellow pupils who scratched that image on the school wall that uh, Nick talked about, you know, trying to deride uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, and Alex Amos, the, the pupil who must have been an early worshipper, you know, this is, your, this is your God, crucified, powerless. But the Apostle Paul gives us a greater revelation of how God's power is displayed in you and I, in other of his letters. Paul writes two ch letters to the churches in Corinth, and between his first letter and his second letter, he has suffered terribly, particularly at Ephesus. He's had a really, really tough time. And as he comes to write this second le letter, he talks about a thorn that torments him. And he, and he prays to God to take this thorn away. And no one knows what this thorn is. We still don't know to this day what Paul was describing when he talked about this thorn. Some people think it may have been a physical condition. Some people think it may have been um, the persecution and suffering he was under. Some people think it may have been living with the regret of having been someone who persecuted and put early believers to death. We just simply don't know what this thorn was. It may have been a temptation that Paul was struggling with. So Paul prays, God remove the thorn. But God doesn't remove. Instead, he gives revelation. He, Paul pleads with the Lord three times, take it away. But God says, I'm not going to remove it. Instead, I'm going to give you revelation. And the revelation that Paul receives is this. He writes, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God speaks to Paul in the midst of his sufferings, in the midst of his prayers. And he tells him this incredible spiritual truth that through Paul's infirmities, through his weakness, through his frailty, God's miraculous power is completed. He tells Paul, my kingdom plan is being accomplished through your weakness, through your frailty, through your suffering. And in light of this amazing revelation that Paul's received, he goes on to say, therefore I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God speaks and everything changes for Paul. And Paul says, I'm now going to boast about my weaknesses. 
because God has told me that when I feel the most powerless, God is at his most powerful. And that perspective changes everything for Paul. When I am weak, then I am strong. And I think powerless is a word many of us would use to describe maybe the last 11 months as we've struggled with the COVID pandemic. We felt powerless in so many ways. We felt powerless to affect change. We felt powerless to plan. We felt powerless to act. That sense of powerlessness has been has pervaded us over these weeks and months. And we don't like it. We don't like the sense of powerlessness. We want to regain control of our lives. We want to regain power. And often, like Paul, we want God to remove something. We want God to remove something from our lives to make our lives easier and better. But I think just like Paul, we don't need God to remove something. What we need, as Paul did, was revelation. We need God to speak into our lives more than ever at this particular time. These four little words buried in two Corinthians. He said to me, he said to me. And I think those four words are so powerful and so profound because they tell us that the God of the universe can speak to us personally and directly. We can pray and God can speak straight into our situation, into our lives. Not a general word, not like a horoscope in a daily paper. God can speak specifically to you and to me. And this is the, the real wonder of the gospel, isn't it? That the God of the universe, the God of the, of, of the vastness and the magnitude, can personally be involved in my life and your life. God can speak to me and he can speak to you. And he can speak into our situation, into our circumstance, just like he did with Paul. And Paul prayed. Paul was praying specifically for a certain thing to happen. But God said, this is what you need. You need revelation about your situation, about your condition. And we need that revelation and that insight more than ever at this time in our lives. There's so many voices, so many voices speaking into our lives externally. We need the voice of God to speak into our lives directly and personally, more than ever more, I believe. This is what Jesus accomplished when he went to that cross, when the most powerful being who's ever lived chose to surrender all that power to go to that cross. He broke down the barriers between us and God. He enabled us to reconnect with our Father, a Father who wants to speak to us and a Father who wants to listen to us. The words that God spoke to Paul had the most profound effect on his life and his understanding. They gave him kingdom insight into his situation. He said, I delight in weaknesses now. I delight in insults, in hardships and persecutions, in difficulties. It's almost like Paul saying, I, I welcome them, I understand them. I've seen them from a different perspective because I know when they happen to me, the gospel is going forward. God's kingdom work is being accomplished. So what does God want to say to us this morning? What does God want to say to you this morning? I'd love it if you also could come in and say to me, but he said to me, he said to me this. God spoke to me and said these words into my situation. And I want to pray this morning that we'd all hear the voice of God. We'd all hear God speak, even if we feel utterly powerless, even if we feel like that wave in that picture that Kitty showed is going to overwhelm us. More than ever, we need God to speak. Yes, we want action. Yes, we want change. Yes, we want some semblance of control back into our lives. But what we really need is the voice of God. 
speaking in, giving us insight, giving us revelation. So I want to pray in a moment. You may never prayed before. You may be watching this and thinking, well, I've got no idea you know, what Christianity is about. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can pray the simplest prayer. The simplest prayer you can pray is, Jesus, would you speak to me? Would you speak to me? And then you can wait and open the door of your heart and allow his voice to speak in. That's, that's, the, that's the power of the gospel, the restored relationship that you and I can have with Christ. Receive his forgiveness. The most powerful being who ever lived went to a cross for you so you can be back in relationship with the Father who loves you. So let's pray. You might want to open your hands. You might want to close your eyes and just expect to receive a word from God this morning. So Lord, we thank you for the encouragement from the life of Paul. We thank you that even though he felt powerless, he was powerful, God, in you. We thank you that your kingdom power works through our frailty, works through our brokenness and works through our weakness. And as we journey, the same journey that your son Jesus Christ led God, we, we, we will encounter that Christ-like power in our own lives. So God, I pray this morning that you would speak a word into every person watching this, God. A word that comes directly from you into their hearts and into their situation. Lord, because your words bring life and they bring love and they bring comfort. So Lord, we open our hearts to you this morning. Lord, would you speak the word to each one of us? Let's just wait for a moment now. Let's just wait and open our hearts to God. I can just sense his presence in the room with me. I can, you can probably sense his presence in the room with you by his spirit. He's there with you now. And so, Lord, we just wait for your word to come into our hearts. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you so want to communicate with us. You so love us. Thank you, Jesus. And so let's just practice over these next days of Lent. Let's just be intentional about drawing aside to hear the Father's words of life spoken into our heart. We just welcome you, Lord, today. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.